I felt like I was going to have the rug pulled out for me again if I tried staying in churches that mm. claimed that but didn't put it on paper. It's like at some point, as Charlie Brown, I have to stop going to try and kick Lucy's football. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like I... Oh, that always pained me so much. Right. <laughs> it is. It's one of the worst jokes in Peanuts. Welcome to Communion and Shalom. In this podcast, we are exploring how the biblical and historic Christian faith can engage sexuality, ethnicity, culture, and our local communities as we pursue the flourishing of God's kingdom. Our goal is to engage these topics charitably and with nuance. We're excited to share this episode's interview with you, where we talk with our friend JP, who's moved over time from side B, which upholds the historic Christian sexual ethic, to side A, which affirms gay marriage and same-sex sexual relationships. We're really thankful for JP taking the time to share, and we hope it is helpful for you as you think about these topics in the life of the church. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Communion and Shalom. We're so happy today to be here. This is TJ. And of course, my friend, uh, David, I'm here as well. Today, we want to talk about an important topic with a special guest of ours. So today we want to talk about people who were formerly side B, but over time moved away to other positions or even not even affiliated with the church any longer. So I have my good friend JP here. We've been friends for around seven years mm -hmm. and we originally met at a church. We we're both going to the same church in the Twin Cities. And actually JP was probably the first person that I knew who was side B. And it was also my, my entry point for knowing that there was a side B community. Hmm. You mentioned to me that a Facebook group existed, which right. I didn't know. I decided not to pursue it because I was like, I don't have Facebook. I guess I'm not mm -hmm. going to pursue it. So I didn't at that point. But I think we've, we've been talking about this in our friendship over time in different ways. Right. Even though over time your position has evolved or changed as well. Yeah. So a few other things about JP. Well, JP works in education. He can maybe tell you more about that. He's been around the Twin Cities for some of his life, but he's also lived internationally as well for some parts of his life. And he can say more about that. He attended Christian college and we have a lot of mutual friends. Mm -hmm. So it's been good to know him over the past seven years. Yeah. But JP, I'm not sure if you want to say anything else about yourself before we begin. Yeah. Well, after my undergraduate in like music and history, I went into special education where I work now. And I don't know to what extent that prompted my change of mm -hmm. beliefs, but in having to make changes in my life out of like going from a practical degree, going to a practical degree out of being a music historian was what I thought I was going to be. <laughs> yeah. I think it was a shift of, there are elements of my shift that were practical. I get that. JP, could we start at the beginning? Actually, before we continue on your history, maybe we should talk about, is there a particular word you might use to describe yourself in terms of sexual orientation or do you avoid terms? Or even well, that? I use terms like bisexual or queer. Uh -huh. Um, I, yeah, those are, those are the terms I'm usually. I must come with. Yeah. Cool. So, okay. That's good to know. Let's start with your story. So I'm curious. I know you grew up in a Christian household. Your parents were Christian and your siblings mm -hmm. were Christians then. And I think some of them still are, but yeah, what was that like for you as you were kind of discerning your sexuality in your particular Christian context? I was 
definitely not aware of being queer from a young age because, you know, I started in Wyoming. We were living there up until I was about seven years old. And then in the Twin Cities, um, since then, more or less. And, you know, it was kind of, it was very much an other, the way we perceived LGBTQ people. I recall going to a, in Wyoming, we went to a 4th of July dance at uh, Fort Laramie and uh, there was a gay couple from Colorado and my parents had me not join the dances where we changed partners because they didn't want us touching the you gay know, this couple. gay couple. Oh, okay. And I just remember a lot of disparaging comments about them. So that was kind of like the perception that was also right before Matthew Shepard was killed mm-hmm. was you know, we moved the year before he was killed about 40 miles from where I grew up in Wyoming. Oh, wow. Who's Matthew Shepard? Um, right. So his, his death in 1998 prompted a lot of hate crime legislation mm-hmm. because I mean, he was a drug dealer as well. So people like would say that, well, that's why he was killed, but it was also a crime of passion. Definitely where mm-hmm. his, probably his ex, I mean, it was his ex pretty horrifically killed him. I don't want to go into detail about it. This is in Wyoming. This is in Wyoming outside of Laramie. So he went to the university of Wyoming, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I mean, I don't want to ever characterize that as like the worst thing that's going on because one of the things that happened was there had been a horrific killing of a man named James Byrd that year as well, or the year before, I think, in Texas. And so there was a move to talk about hate crimes only in regards to race. Mm. And I do think these kinds of issues should be dealt with separately. And the loss, the law was putting them together. Mm-hmm. And I think that was just a, you know, coincidence in time. So I never want to like... I don't think of the, they're both horrific. They're both evil, mm-hmm. but they are different types of things. And I think a lot of people's minds, they kind of merge because of their happening at similar times. Mm-hmm. So those things loom large on my conscience, consciousness, I should say, when I was growing up. And I think I had this view as I became aware of like, I think I'm attracted to men and women that, oh, my parents were like suppressing any femininity or whatever for the purpose of protecting me. Okay. And maybe that's how they saw it. I've never had a conversation with them about that, but I was definitely like not allowed to dance. I remember asking multiple times, like, I want to take dance classes. And that was like, not a thing. My dad just laughed, mm-hmm. you know, he was like, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. I was allowed to do music though. And that became a huge area of, you know, joy and expression. I led worship for many years when I was going to both Bethlehem Baptist, where I was early on in the Twin Cities because my parents were there. And then literally I met TJ at. Yeah. So yeah, music has been a huge part of my life and faith and in many ways processing my journey of sexuality. Sure. Because I wrote many, many songs throughout the years. Um, I've been journaling as an adult and even started as a kid, but, um, music has definitely been a way of like both self-therapy, but also just trying to understand what's going on inside of me. I'm wondering in my story, I didn't have words to talk about my sexuality. And for me, it was in the college years. Yeah. But how about you? Like. When you were in high school age, college age, when did you start pursuing it more deeply or right. the words to use? Or? It was being, I was, I was in Thailand for four, about four months as a gap year between high school and college. Mm-hmm. And it was ironically the experience of seeing so many men seeking out sex workers uh-huh. that made me realize like, oh, I had this opportunity to like sin uh-huh. and pursues a sex, an actual sexual relationship with someone. And I realized not that I was looking for prostitutes by any means, but I was thinking about, oh, 
if I actually wanted to have sex, I think it would be with a man or a woman. And I mm. don't really know what that means. Sure. So I really struggled with any kind of identifier until well after college. Okay. Which I think is a common experience for a lot of people who would maybe not call themselves bi. Right. Because it's, it was often just been like gay or straight. Right. Exactly. They get married to a person of the opposite sex and then realize, you know, oh my gosh, I never accepted this about myself or I never even processed this about myself. Or more rarely, you know, you hear people who like get married to a person of the same sex and then realize it, but that's all different. Yeah. You know, matter because that's only been a thing for like well, probably seven years. Yeah. That seems right. Um, at this, when you were getting older, what was the church teaching like in your church context? At Bethlehem Baptist, there was actually very little mention of it. You know, people have this perception of like the church being actively homophobic. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really experience that where there was like an attempt to talk about it a lot from the pulpit. And it's one thing to talk about like doctrines. It's another thing to, you know, denigrate people of different sexualities. Um, mm. And I didn't see that happening. And that was one of the few positives, I would say. And then when I was at the church we went to, we, we actually didn't have much in our church context about that kind of teaching. And I, I felt very welcomed by the priest there. Although it was the priest who planted the church who introduced me to an ex-gay ministry that I went to. So mm. I knew that there was a, a complex mix of conversations. Yeah. But that's what I understood Anglicanism to be uh -huh. was, you know, not saying this is exactly what we believe, but saying here are the boundaries for what is, I don't know, healthy or <laughs> lead you open to the spirit. I don't know how they would put it, but that's what I understood the, the crux of Anglicanism to be. Okay. I'd love to ask more, if you're willing to share more with ex-gay experience. Yeah. But before that, I wanted to, just because of the timeline I'm thinking. Yeah. I was curious more about your experience in college. I know you attended a Christian college. Mm -hmm. So yeah. How are you feeling at that point with processing these things or being in that context for yeah. these conversations? I mean, I came from an environment with a lot of like anxiety about uh, sexual relationships and, you know, mm -hmm. getting a girl pregnant and all of these things. And. I have a very specific memory of when I was, I think it was my freshman year, because I didn't live in the dorms, but I was being picked up from the dorms. And a classmate uh, from my orientation group was praying with me, and she had, she was holding my hands in prayer. And my dad rolls up, and he's like, I get in the car, and he's like giving me this lecture about like how spiritual intimacy can lead to sexual intimacy. And like, that was the environment I grew up in. Mm -hmm. So any kind of physical exploration or even romantic exploration felt very, very fearful. Mm. So I was very fearful of it, I should say. And that, so that was something, you know, I went on dates with some women in college, but you know, I didn't, I didn't explore it much. And as far as, you know, other questions, I did see it like a therapist or a, co a counselor at college, but that was really unhelpful because he just, once I started talking about sexuality, he, or even just sexual desires. He was like, well, you have to join this accountability group that meets during chapel now. Oh, and good. that was dreadful. Was it? Yeah. The group was dreadful? Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. it was just a bunch of people talking about their sexual mistakes. Okay. And uh, yeah, it was really gross. <laughs> I do remember the leader of that group who had, and I applaud on the one hand, the notion that, you know, people who commit crimes should be rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. So this man had 
the man who was leading the group had actually like being molested his adopted daughter or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was trying to lead a program for people in recovery from sex addiction and sexual criminals. But I remember so clearly one of the times in the group, he talked about the, the reason he knew he had gone too far was not doing inappropriate thing, like doing, molesting his adopted daughter. The reason he knew he had gone too far was because he started having homosexual thoughts. The scary thing was not violating consent and destroying Michelle's innocence. The scary thing was another man. Uh-huh. And like, that is, that is one of those core memories of like why I had a lot of questions about the whole mm-hmm. ex-gay culture of shame mm-hmm. about sexuality. JP, I'm going to ask, in my time of knowing you, I occasionally have thought that you, uh, you're closer to describe yourself as gay yeah. or um, more attracted to men, like predominantly. But, uh, but more often you've talked about yourself as bisexual in my hearing. Mm-hmm. So has, has that been part of your story kind of occasionally closer to gay rather than bisexual or? I mean, I feel generally more comfortable dating men or mm-hmm. non-binary people because I think some of the ways that our culture um, pushes women to, like they, we socialize women to be like meek and like deferring and there's very strange things especially in christian culture mm-hmm. i just find them very frustrating i see like i want when i've when i've been into women it's because i'm like we're <laughs> butting heads uh-huh. we're we're she wants to be seen as an equal and while i think that that idea is growing in christian circles there's just centuries of christian teaching that women are trying to navigate around when and, and even cultural stuff mm. in the u.s where it's just causing them to want to believe they need to be a certain way in order to attract a man mm-hmm. because you hear plenty of secular women saying like i like my men this you know like strong and owning pickup trucks and these yeah. things it's just like that has nothing to do with masculinity sure. like there's nothing to do with what genitals you have uh-huh. it's just a cultural trait i see you know i get it i get it okay i i wanted to i want to hear more about the ex-gay part of your story. I'm also wondering at this point, were you connected to side B Christians as of yet in this kind of timeline? It happened kind of in 2011 when I was studying abroad, uh-huh. um, where I was, I think about that group of people I was studying abroad with and we were in England and there was about 30, maybe 25 men and probably half of them are queer. Oh, okay. Like now that I know, like we're still all mostly friends and like, mm-hmm. So I don't know if it was that closeted queer men at Christian colleges wanted to study abroad or what, what, what happened? <laughs> Were they all studying music? Or no? I know, exactly. No, I was the only person studying music. Oh, okay. Ironically. So it was, it was the first time I ran into A, an out gay person my own age. Uh-huh. And second, it was the first time I met people who were still wanting to be Christians, but also talk about their sexuality hmm. in different ways. Sure. And a friend from that uh, time invited me to this side B group and my mentor from the X game industry was like, you definitely can't join this. Uh-huh. And I was just kind of like, I'm just not going to respond to that email. Yeah. And, and it took me two years to join the group after that because oh, I had my own fears about it, uh-huh. but he wanted me to even cut off contact with that. this new friend. Uh-huh. 
And that was one of the patterns that had emerged during my time in the ex-gay ministry was that they said everybody else, like queer culture is like so codependent and there's plenty of codependency everywhere in the world. Sure. Mm -hmm. But you basically had to be codependent to that ministry or you were going to fall apart because it was modeled on like an AA type of thing. And that has some merit when you're dealing with an actual addiction, mm-hmm. but sex addiction is not the same. If it is real, it's not the same as being attracted to the same sex. Uh-huh. And so to, so to approach it that way, like the ex-gay ministries do, mm-hmm. just creates a lot of, I think, illogical results. Mm-hmm. And I want to ca- characterize, it was not reparative therapy. Mm-hmm. It was not terribly like psychologically abusive or anything. It was just... Um, yeah, I just had some very strange ideas about mm-hmm. the way things are. So this ex-gay ministry you're involved in, they mostly engaged in um, like praying for you? and It was kind of okay. So it was, it was connected to like the House of Prayer movement, the International House of Prayer movement. Uh-huh. So as a musician, I liked a lot of aspects of it, but that was another aspect of the codependency where it was like, you really had to devote yourselves to them before they would even let you be part of the music thing. Okay. <laughs> and I knew that things were going to be weird from the moment when I was like trying to get to know the worship leader guy who led the ministry and still does. And he was like, it's like, oh, so what, what kinds of inspiration do you have for your piano playing? And it's like, well, Elton John. I was like, okay. <laughs> Not who I would have expected for the leader of an executive ministry who's now married to a woman and has kids. Yeah. Not that I can fault him, but sure. I'll just try and pretend and say Billy Joel, you know, <laughs> like, uh, but yeah, I never was able to participate in the music because I wasn't like deep enough into their whatever. And I did like a summer internship, the summer that I should have been doing that college internship. Mm-hmm. I instead was praying the queer away. And there were many good things about that time in terms of my personal growth and my relationship with God. Um, the movie Tree of Life came out that summer. And I think that's one of the only things mm-hmm. that really helped me center on like God not being mediated through problematic authority figures. Okay. And just that one of the primary things I think for me that that movie is saying is like, God is always going to be a little bit beyond Mm -hmm. whatever human authority figure is trying to control you or dictate your life. So that was another part of that summer that was very profound. Okay. Yeah. How long were you in that ministry? I was only in it basically from the fall of 2010 to early 2012, but I was also studying abroad during that, you know, like yeah. four months of that year. So I was most actively involved the summer of 2011. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why'd you leave or what led you out at the end of that? It was him telling me not to be friends with the, the okay. mentor telling me not to be friends with people that I'd met studying abroad just yeah. because they were like taking a different perspective on these uh-huh. matters and i'm sure they were fearful of like sexual sin or something which did not happen with this person yeah but i was just like i, I can't deal with people who are going to try and control my life uh-huh. but don't have time to provide any pot like you know yeah there's nothing like constructive or edifying about the rest of what he was trying to do he was just trying mm-hmm. to get me to cut this person off so then he said it took you two years after that, even join the site. Join the site group. Okay. Yeah. So it was an interim time. You're just yeah. figuring things out. And that was the time when I was getting involved at the church we were at, TJ. And it was, it was just kind of a rebuilding time because of how, um, you know, the upheavals of 2011 for me that were kind of shifting my life. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm not going to be a music historian now. Uh-huh. Uh, I need something more meaningful to do with my life. And so I drove for like a 
a bunch of different <laughs> dry cleaning and pizza and whatever. Sure. That was not more meaningful, but it, it allowed me time to like listen to audiobooks and just kind of like figure out where either God was leading me or as my pastor, one of the things I appreciated about him was that he kind of redirected from saying like, oh, you have to wait for God's quote unquote leading. And it's this magical thing that happens. And it's like, no, it was this idea that you are following God faithfully, or you're following what you understand the Bible to be and making choices based on that. And you're not looking for a sign. Or you're not looking for a sign. You're not yeah. looking for a, what is Gideon putting out the fleece. You know, yeah. you're not, you're not expecting that. Yes. And so that was another change that happened during that time that was very helpful. And I don't know that the way I was brought up was specifically because of like the Calvinism or why I was so tied to like, I need to know that this is God's will before I do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was a very freeing thing to mm -hmm. realize that the Holy Spirit doesn't just work in like these magical flashes of tongues of fire or wet fleece. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I thought... I'm, I'm a little bit surprised to know that you delayed for two years to enter the group because yeah. I totally thought you were one of the first members of that particular army yeah. that we're talking about. But you were. I was not. No. Okay. Even though I knew many of the people who were in it, I uh -huh. was um, even so the, the, the pastor, one of the other pastors at that church, I remember having a conversation with him about how afraid I was of joining this group and like, mm -hmm. would it lead to sexual sin? And like, there were a couple of times that it did eventually, but the wealth of friendship and community and spiritual growth mm -hmm. makes me not regretful at all. Mm. Plus as somebody who's now on a different side of things, I really appreciate, I really appreciated the opportunity to talk with people who had just a, a deep conversations about these kinds of things. Cause I was mm. not allowed to have any of these kinds of conversations. And it gives me a lot more respect for people who are in the side B, side Y, et cetera, frame of mind, because there were many great things about those kind of spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very grateful yeah. for that aspect of it. And I'm still friends with many people who yeah. I met during that time. Definitely. How long would you say you were part of kind of that group as a side B community? About five years. Five years, okay. Um, That's most of the time that we were in church together, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, I stopped going to that church in 2017, and I think it was about a year or two later. I can't remember when exactly I left the Side B group, mm -hmm. but uh, my friendships there, you know, I'm still, I just last year for the first time met somebody that was one of my first friends in that, in that group. Uh -huh. And that was really a, a beautiful thing because, you know, seven years of knowing somebody and never having met them because so in a different country and mm -hmm. finally being able to meet, um, it was just a beautiful thing. And it was several of his other friends from that side B group. So it was like a, you know, interesting reunion and people had different paths and different perspectives, but it was a really unique and powerful time of camaraderie. I bet. Yeah. Can I, can I ask a question going back to your time, um, brief stint with the ex gay industry? Yeah. You said that there wasn't reparative therapy, but yeah. you felt like maybe they did it. Did they explicitly sit? Probably the writing explicitly use a phrase like pray the gay away. No. But how would you describe the, like, what made it side X? And, and, well, yeah. Yeah. Like, what does that mean for you? I mean, there was one of the, like, defining features of side X for me is that you cannot, you can't say gay. 
you know, maybe you're not calling it pray the gay way, but you cannot use the LGBTQ terminology. That's just, that's off limits. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things where that was, you know, very clear, very clear. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing was this like push towards heterosexual marriage, mm -hmm. which is different than people in the, you know, side B side Y kind of thing where it's like, well, no, you don't have to pursue marriage, but it was very much like, no, that's what you want to do. That's what you have to do. There was no, there was no idea that like singleness or celibacy had much value. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, a very sad and unfortunate thing mm -hmm. about it because it it's just part of that broader cultural thing of like devaluing people who aren't in a relationship and pushing them to the margins of society. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, I think, one of the most unfortunate things that they were party to that isn't a common critique, I think, of ex-gay ministries, but it, yeah, they didn't seem to care about single on married people mm -hmm. um, or think that that was what God could be calling you to. But they were very much, you know, they wouldn't say that like you're necessarily going to be able to have kids, but they definitely wanted you to get with a person of the opposite sex. Sure. Okay. And it was a sign of God's blessing if you had kids because they're Pentecostals, there was all sorts of language of God's blessing. And yep, yep. we're going to read a lot of the song of Solomon, sure. but none of it's going to be sexual. Like we're just, this is all allegorical all the time. <laughs> that was, that was also very surreal. Interesting. Did you have friends from that, the side, uh, side X ministry? It was the outpost. Yeah, outpost. was the name of it. Oh, we actually, I know it's people from outpost. Yeah. You still have friends from there? No, no. I was most curious on what their outcomes were. Did they right. continue with it? Did they change? Did I've they run into one person who was still with it and one person who was not uh -huh. of the cohort that I went through that internship with out of like 12. Men, there were no women in the cohort at that time. Uh -huh. So I don't know. That's a, it's a sample size of two. Yeah, I know. It's more pretty. Yeah, they get it. Each going a different direction. Well, it, well, it's been really interesting based off of my kind of small experience with it is, and even like for you is less explicitly about any specific like doctrine that they taught aside mm -hmm. from maybe like how to relate to LGBTQ culture. Right. And maybe they embedded it in a certain kind of theological framework, but more so this culture right. of, of how they're, how you're getting pushed or pulled in different ways. And I have a, a recent person who I think valued it in part, but you know, it was just like the, the way that it seemed to be, I don't know. He was uncomfortable with the way that it was like, almost need to prove his masculinity and right. constantly just focus on like, you know, rather than just like, yeah. I'd like to talk about like my sexuality with them. Right. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, and so it's interesting to think it, especially around singleness and marriage and the different way that, uh, side X and side Y people that I, I think I've probably found side X people who are more real similarly don't practice like this harsh reparative therapy right. have reasonable expectations of like what right. change is possible that right atheistic queer people have like right. similar expectations of what's possible yeah. um and they actually hold themselves in that regard like mm -hmm. pretty all right mm -hmm. but it, it's to this opposition to lgbtq culture that right. still kind of defines them yeah. or maybe this real this desire to cultivate heterosexual desire as yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. And my experience of that, of a, of a summer where I was, you know, 
so focused on that was that I came to the conclusion that, I mean, it's, it's there. It's not something that I needed to like cultivate or imagine. Mm. It wasn't that I had to allow myself to experience because I'd been raised in such a, you know, I remember having to right, And it was like, you can't even think about sexual things until marriage. And when you're, when you're bisexual, it's not necessarily like you have like rampant hormones on both sides. It's sometimes like, it's just divided evenly. Like mm -hmm. okay. it's, it's as much as I think people who have it directed only one way, but it's like, I, I feel pretty, some days pretty evenly attracted, but mm. it was pretty easy to shut it down and think that I wasn't really sexually attracted to people. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's what was going on a lot of that time. And realizing like, well, if I can accept this part of myself, why can't I accept the other mm -hmm. part of myself as from God? I mean, they just had so many weird, like you're saying, David, it was very cultural where it was like, we, and there was reasons it wasn't, it was, it was fascinating because one of the things that they taught was like, you know, we pray that God will change our desires, but he might not, but we know he can't change like our mannerisms. That was one of the fascinating things about the way that this guy taught. He was just like, you know, I'm as butch as I will get. And that, so I was just like, well, it's actually pretty easy to act. Like <laughs> You can. And it was fascinating to me that for him, it was like, it was too much work to do some of the external things, but having a wife and kids. Okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> okay. And for some people, I think it's important to still seem a little gay, uh -huh. but claim themselves as ex-gay. Sure. Like they still want to be visibly queer in some way, mm -hmm. but that's their way of showing like, but God changed me because mm -hmm. I have this heterosexual family. Uh -huh. I don't know if that's exactly what's going through his head, but that was all I could figure. Okay. And as you answered your question, I want, want to go back to like, do I have any friends from it? They actively discourage us from making friends oh, okay. in the group because they don't want you to have your new best friend. They don't want you to have a boyfriend. They were just like, your only context for socializing was supposed to be in ministry related events. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah. And that was the way it was 10 years ago. I don't know if they've changed now. Yeah. Huh? I, my only experience with them was actually counter picketing them when the state's legislature was looking at passing anti conversion therapy, anti conversion therapy right. legislation. And I thought it was so fascinating that they cared because they didn't do what would be considered conversion. Sure. Therapy, yeah. But they were afraid that they would be in danger. And I just went up and shared. You know, I, I had a poster and a friend helped me making posters just to share and talk to people who were willing to talk. The leader of the ministry was not willing to talk. And I was honestly, I had a panic attack when I started hearing his voice. So I was not about to talk to him. Uh -huh. And it was only the fact that I had a friend there with me who convinced me to even walk up and, you know, just explain that this doesn't always lead to a positive outcome for people. Sure. That they're getting only one side of the story. Got it. Yeah, that's important. And that, yeah, the complexity there of how they were picketing something that they didn't actually practice. And, right. and sometimes we think of ex-gay as yeah. being very tied to specific reparative therapy right. kind of practices. And, yeah. and that's been one thing I've noticed is that there's a lot of people under that umbrella of ex-gay. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, a wide like range of things. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Uh, a wide range of like therapies or methods or right. something. Yeah. Right. 
Mm. And there are, there are, you know, scattered secular or atheistic people who believe this. And I think that's more testament to the power of like, some people call it heteronormativity or just this desire to have like this, this dream of like a heterosexual relationship. Mm -hmm. There are many good things about it. And I don't want to, you know, diminish that because I have many heterosexual friends and I love them. Yeah. But, yeah the survival of the humanity. Right. It depends <laughs> on <laughs> people having children. And it's just fascinating to me that people make such a big deal about it, no matter where you go, you know, mm -hmm. because there are many ways, you know, we were talking before this about like collective cultures. It's like, you know, kids may not end up being raised by their biological parents for many reasons. Mm -hmm. And while I believe that kids need more than one adult in their life to have a stable upbringing that could look very differently. And I don't, I don't think we can, you know, yeah, the survival, our survival depends on it as a race. And it also looks very different how it plays out, you know, in, in different cultures and experiences. Can we jump back to your side beta? Yeah. I was curious. We're kind of at the point in the story where you started having an exodus. This is around the right. 17. Yeah. And I think I once saw in your group, the group sometimes has posts where people talk about their, their leaving posts. Yeah. I think I saw a long time ago when I first joined the group, I had seen, when looking at his, back in the history of the group, yeah. I saw your leaving post. Yeah. But yeah, can you kind of expound on that? Like at that point, why were you leaving? What was changing in your life? What was the movement? Um, I felt it was the most honest thing to do because I had had attempts at celibate partnerships that had ended very badly. Mm -hmm. And I decided to pursue a relationship that wasn't necessarily going to be celibate. And I did not, didn't bother me whether that was going to be with a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. And when it ended up that I was dating a man, I did not feel like I could with integrity, stay in the group. Yeah. Um, so plenty of people did. And I, I don't fault them for it, but I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Yeah. By plenty of them people did, you mean some people who were in relationships that were not. Not celibate. Celibate. Yeah. yeah. And there was, there were people who like viewed it as wrong, but they were kind of like secret about it, but they felt bad about it. And then there were people who just like didn't care. Sure. And I never understood why they stayed in the group, but they got out of that. Mm -hmm. I didn't, didn't want to be that kind of person. Yeah. Um, so I felt it best to just step out at that time. You talk more about the thought process behind that. Cause I understand that the, like the, the practical aspect that you were deciding to date some people yeah. may not be celibate. I understand that like practical movement, right? but like, what were you thinking? Did it seem like the, the biblical account that side B was offering no longer seemed sufficient or God, the Holy spirit, you felt the sense for something else or just didn't make sense at all or just what was happening there? There were a couple of things. One was that I was struggling with the way I had been taught to relate to the Holy spirit in that mm -hmm. there were certain choices of conscience that as an evangelical turned Anglican, I thought were like no brainers and watching how the church responded to Donald Trump's presidency or, you know, electoral process and presidency. Mm -hmm. was very, um, disconcerting, even though there weren't, you know, there was nobody actively supporting him in the church, you know, openly, there definitely were people who voted for him. Sure. There was also not a in lot of, church. yeah, there was also not a lot of conversation about like, well, how do we be Christians in a political space? Uh -huh. 
And that was even something I'd been teaching at Bethlehem College and Seminary. And I was even impressed that they had a get out to vote effort against him, Donald Trump, in the in the seminary in the seminary and i was teaching there at the time and so that's the only reason i caucused against him i did almost caucus for bernie but then i realized like you know maybe i'm gonna caucus for rubio instead and <laughs> that was just where i was politically at the time i don't want to go into politics but just to say that like seeing the church then step back you know people who i respected choosing like battle lines that seemed like they were drawn back in the 80s mm-hmm. and not being willing to have conversations across them anymore was very disturbing Hmm. and it made me question whether the Holy Spirit was really present in any of these places that I had thought I was connecting with him. And I, for that and other reasons, you know, I I mentioned that there was a change in the, I think this was before we actually started recording, but we were talking about the change in our leadership at church regarding Hmm. conversations about side B, where they'd been very open to this talk of like, could you be in a celibate partnership? Could you be in a chosen community, like a a committed community, what kinds of living contribute to the well-being of people who don't fit in the nuclear family model that so many churches just don't question. And there was a beautiful openness that I had experienced for a while in that church. And then in 2017, the bishop, it was late 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, So right time with the election, that was probably what was most disturbing about it was that the Bishop Stuart Ruck came out with this big fully alive sermon series and it was shots across the bow, you know, about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what about same sex people. And think they, I don't know if they actually ended up dealing with trans people or not. I can't remember. I only listened to three or four of the sermons out of the five mm-hmm. and my, my priest had told me, you know, you should listen to these. But I realized after the fact that he was telling me this because this was the new direction of the diocese and he wasn't going to question it. I see. Unfortunately, because I would describe him as like pathologically Swedish, that came out in the most like backwards manner possible. Uh-huh. Like he couldn't outright say it. He didn't want me to feel unwelcome. Yeah. But it was very clear that like he could no longer offer support for any kind of side B ideology. He didn't feel that he could. Yeah. And that was... That was sad. Um, yeah, it is sad. Because I had many, and I still have some friendships from that church, but it was really difficult to watch that happen. So it was it was a combination of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like the sociopolitical thing and realizing, you know, all churches, regardless of their claims about God, mm-hmm. are linked to sociopolitical realities, like mm-hmm. cultural realities. And I recall, and this is ironic, that this is one of the chapels at Northwestern I remember the most clearly Mark Driscoll, uh-huh. the since like, well, <laughs> his problems are well documented. He came and spoke at Revelation. He did. Uh, huh. And I was like, we being, I was, it was a very powerful chef. <laughs> and I think about that experience. I'm like, what was that? I, I don't know. <laughs> at his, at his chapel, he talked about you're all, the church is always acculturated. What's the other word? Syncretized, contextualized to a certain time period, uh-huh. whether your church is being you know, still with voicemails or whether you have a website. Uh-huh. And I think that's still true in the church that we're contextualized to a certain time period, a certain culture, yeah. a certain reality. And whether or not your church is the kind that actually has access to God, because that's what I believe. Right? I believe that like, that was the only kind of church that had access to God was mm-hmm. the kind I was in. Mm-hmm. And yet 
we were very much kept in the dark about the ways that we were tied to certain cultural realities. Mm, interesting. And I think those kind of conversations need to be had in any kind of church that wants transparency and doesn't want people like Mark Driscoll, Bishop Stewart, you know, people like that in power. Mm -hmm. Because when it's, we can't question leaders, it's not really about doctrine. It's about transparency and where the question leaders that I think causes these kinds of people to have the way, sway that they do. Yeah. And just reflecting, you mentioned two big kind of the political and these like social, sexual yeah. control shifts that almost feels like the, the rug was pulled out from underneath you. Like as you yes. <laughs> getting, you know, established and pursuing what you would, you know, like a side B light right. that as well as just a like Christian ethical conservative point right. where that's actually growing in, in the ethical love that you would see Craig right. repelling you towards. And then that like these political, you know, around Trump and such, but <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, like what, what happened here in the church? What, what's going on here? And the, yeah, it, it feels like the space shrinks in which right. you can like oh, that's a great keep way to growing put it. in your love of God within what was existing. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly how it felt when I was listening or we were driving and I was listening to those sermons by Bishop Stuart Ruck. And I was like, I can't, I could barely breathe. Mm. And this place that I thought I'd found life now was not exactly deadly, but as somebody who had you know, in 2015, I had attempted suicide and that was more a result of growing up in a context where mental health was not a conversation, mm -hmm. but it was also about the fact that I wanted to start talking about my sexuality. I was so afraid of it. Mm -hmm. And so that had only been a couple of years prior. So there was a lot that I was dealing with and people at church were mostly really incredible about those kinds of realities, especially mental health. Cause I grew up in a reality where, you know, my, my dad believed James Dobson was too progressive. Okay. You know, that's the, that's the kind of reality I grew up in yeah, yeah. because he, you know, he had a psychology degree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was dangerous. <laughs> JP, I'm personally really interested in extend, expanding, continuing the conversations around like celibate relationships of different sorts. Yeah. So I'm curious if you would share any thoughts you had on the past celibate relationship you had, like why they failed or to what extent you see them as possible based on your experience. And this is personal, I don't want to yeah. cry, no, I but I, I'm just curious if you could share anything about that. I won't go into too much depth, but the one thing I just want to say for anyone who's out there, like considering it, mm -hmm. I would strongly urge you to find one where you are not romantically attracted to the person. Okay. Because that is something as I've learned about what queer platonic partnerships are, which was a term that the side B group was finding used in like secular culture, so yep. to speak. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things that those kind of relationships emphasize is that, well, they're, even if you're theoretically going to maybe have sex, like there can't be, it has to be a bond that isn't about a romance, like okay. a, yeah. a rush of feelings. Mm -hmm. And because yeah, in a secular context, they might have sex, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. but it's not about a romantic connection. I think that is the difficulty because of the relationship between romance and sex in a relationship that makes it almost impossible, I think, for a, an actual celibate partnership to happen. Um, it was very difficult to draw lines of consent, for example, and mm -hmm. both of the relationships I was in ended because those lines were crossed for me. 
Okay. And the first, both times it was very damaging, but it, it is something that I would say in no uncertain terms, care about each other as friends. If you were going to attempt something like this, but make sure that it's not, uh, that you're not going to go into a sexual, more than sexual, even romantic, going to that direction because, and you can't be sure. I don't, I don't want to say be sure, but it gets so complicated because of the cultural baggage of purity culture mm-hmm. that once you make a mistake, so to speak, yeah, uh, then what? Yeah, yeah. And I remember there was a lot of conversation that side B group about it, and it was it was challenging to navigate that. And mm-hmm. it is, I'm just going to say, it's easier to have a completely different sexual ethic. Mm-hmm. I don't want everybody. I don't never. Not everybody's going to find that to be the case. Not everybody's going to want that. But when morality is like for me now, it's pretty much about consent. Mm-hmm. And not about, you know, the historical Christian teachings on sex. It removes some of the baggage. But I respect people who are still in a traditional context, and I want them to know if you're seeking companionship, you really have to investigate that aspect of a relationship Mm -hmm. before you commit to it. And just have really good communication, Mm because that... I don't know if that would have saved things in either case. I think they were the lack of examination on the part of my partners in each case, the lack of their processing of these kinds of questions mm-hmm. about, you know, whether it be consent or shame that was kind of doomed okay. the relationships in both cases. Do you know of any successful celibate partnerships? Like, do you know of any as a no? No, there were a couple of people in the, that group who had um, experience that or for time, uh-huh. but I don't anymore. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. And I think one of the challenges is that there becomes this need to be, and this happens in many cases, but in this, even in this small circle, you become so public mm-hmm. and everyone wants to know everything about it. Sure. <laughs> and that's part of the reason I think it can't be romantic. Um, it's because that kind of pressure on any romantic relationship, you're like mini celebrities within that context. I think it just like, it either like broke up the relationship. Or I can think of one that was, I don't know, it was, they were just like very toxic people in the group and yeah. that caused a lot of problems. I, I, I don't know. I wish I had answers for like why there aren't more examples of it, but I do think the, you know, it's, it's like a microscopic lens being focused on you at all times and people are just wondering how do i do this how do i make this work how do i yeah i get that that's very helpful thank you it's it's helpful to have your perspective as we like think about its possibility or the opportunities there so much yeah one thing i do think that makes all the difference and this goes back to the church question is like a church that's willing to make um sacrifices for the people who don't have family supports or Mm -hmm. marital supports. You know, some churches, the sacrifice they make is saying, well, and it is a sacrifice of some kind, but I'm thinking of the church that I've been going to some in St. Paul. One of the things that I learned in going to this church in St. Paul, Awaken West 7th, is that, you know, the, the sacrifice that a church makes can look different where this church is in a denomination that has historically not taken a stance on this matter. And 
was theoretically going to be a place for side B people to be welcome. They decided to take a stance on the matter and unfortunately are you know, drawing the boundaries more conservatively. And at the same time, some pastors who look back at the historical you know, covenant teachings on these, kind of like the Anglican movement, where it's like, well, people should be able to disagree on this and mm. be in communion. And he started performing same-sex weddings and, you know, is having denominational discipline for this. And I, I admire them for making, even though it's, it doesn't require a huge sacrifice, it is, it'll probably cost them at least their place in this denomination and some of the support that they receive, but just some kind of institutional support for people who don't have the traditional family experience, mm -hmm. whether that is saying yes, side B or yes, community housing, yes, shared living experiences, yes, straight couples, especially those who don't have kids making more of an effort with people mm -hmm. who are on their own. Like one of the things that always perplexed me at our church was I, as the single guy working, you know, to pay off college loans and all this stuff, I was the one tasked with bringing the other like disabled, older single guy, I think he was an army veteran or something. I was always the one who was supposed to bring him to church. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I have a Toyota Corolla and <laughs> this is not good for this guy to be able to have to get in and out of it. There are people with like beautiful SUVs and mm -hmm. their doctors and whatever. They, they could easily bring this person here every week. Sure. They don't have kids to worry about. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, it was just strange. Some of the ways that people don't question. It's like, oh, the single people are supposed to take care of each other. <laughs> We're not always the best equipped to do that. I can barely take care of my own apartment. Like, <laughs> okay. I'll just think about Rio, ways that I have experienced institutional, you know, support, and yeah. my elders have been like, "Yeah, we'll come to bat for you." Yeah, you know, if be, if yeah, other kind of more watched out of people in the domination come yeah. down and try to bear down on you for yeah. being side B, because mm -hmm. in our domination, it's kind of a be why I mean, there's a spectrum, but there's right. some I've heard that about why right. people right. in there and that you're right. There's a, that readiness for them to say, mm -hmm. or to actively do it. Mm -hmm. Say we we're behind this person. Right. Mm -hmm. Let's again, back to the story. Yeah. So we're around 2017, 18, you mm -hmm. kind of had started moving away mm -hmm. from side B. Can you tell us at that point, like. Where were you going? What were you thinking? What sort of journey were you on regarding sexuality? Especially, I guess, as relation to side B or yeah. kind of Christian teachings. I mean, that was actually when I started reading a lot of the books about it. I'd read, I think, only Wesley Hill's book at that point, and I, mm -hmm. um, or his two books, I think, at that time. And so I read you know, some of the, the classics from like broader queer culture of the Velvet Rage, mm -hmm. Tim Otto's Oriented to Faith. Yeah. Andrew Marin, mm -hmm. his first book. I haven't read it. Read his second. Is it an orientation? Love, something like that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think. I think there was another one that was pretty profound. It'll it'll come to me eventually. But so I was doing a lot of reading and praying on my own, but going to church was just too um, frustrating. Even when I started going back to church this fall mm -hmm. at Awaken, it was... I I'd visited churches in between, but this was the first concerted effort to like, you know, be part of a church, see church groups again. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of anxiety. And that was both partly because as a Christian who wasn't raised with an idea, ideas about psychology, 
church was always just a place where I could deal with anxiety that I had. And so I think it's just like it kind of waited throughout the week every Sunday. And then I got to write sermon notes and process what was going on in my head. Mm. So there was partly that it just, that's the way I've always gone to church is like bringing the, bringing a burden to the Lord, so to speak. But there was also this fear of just like, are these people going to disappoint me again? Mm. Are you fail me again? And like the, you know, the trope in romantic comedies, I'm not going to give them that chance. And so it has been hard over the last like nine months of like going and wondering, like, is this a place I can find community? I haven't yet committed to a community group because of that, even though I visited and like, I like the people, but I just, I struggle with that mm. again. What ex I experienced it at, in the Anglican church was not as painful on an interpersonal level as what I experienced previously from churches, but it's just difficult. And that, that the pain of the interpersonal or the institutional disappointment definitely was a large part of the reason I just took the time to work through on my own reading this stuff and, but also spend a lot more time caring and being in a relationship with my queer friends, both side B and, and not, and just trying to understand what this other culture is that seems so at odds with the church, I guess, or is, is portrayed that way. Yeah. yeah. Are there any particular insights you learned from the journey? particularly engaging with your queer friends. Yeah. And one of the most fascinating things was my, I have a really good friend who's in recovery from alcoholism and becoming friends with him, A, because we met on a dating app and mm -hmm. like, I didn't feel anything that was difficult for him. But on my part, it was difficult because the ex gay language was so similar to the alcoholism, the AA language, because mm -hmm. it was modeled after that, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. That was difficult. And there were actually a lot of queer people in recovery because as you know, any ex leader will be going to tell you, it's all just drugs and partying <laughs> and like, well, actually there's many queer people who are not doing that. I would imagine it's a majority, but I've not seen any statistics. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, there's absolutely people who are doing that, but there are also straight people who are doing that. And mm -hmm. uh, we don't call that the heterosexual lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> it's just called college. <laughs> exactly. It's just called your twenties. It's, it's a double standard. And I think getting back to your question that it was, it was actually starting to like build friendships with queer people outside of the context of church that made me realize like, oh, it's not as scary as I thought it was going to be. Oh yeah. Okay. And I, I was sad that this had been so anathematized, mm -hmm. like Many queer people are very lonely because regardless of whether or not you're choosing to have sex, the world is a lonely place uh -huh. and romance, like there's failures or disappointments. That's, I think the thing I wish most Christians knew is like, don't necessarily just get to know a queer person for the sake of trying to convert them or get them to repent of their sexuality, but like get to know them to be their friend. I think of my dad's best friend from his childhood and she's, you know, out and proud lesbian, but not partnered. I think she's had a pretty lonely life and, um, he's just too afraid of her being a lesbian. And that was his best childhood friend, mm. you know, like so many stories about her. And I just, I think there's many Christians who are like that, where they just, they have so much fear. And that's when I say homophobia or the passive kind of homophobia is it's actually just fear, mm. you know, and it's. It, there should be no fear in love. Sure. Perfect love casts out fear. But unless we're actually questioning it and working through it, 
it just remains. Hmm. And you don't necessarily need to get rid of the traditional doctrines to begin examining it because there are homophobic people who go to progressive churches. But it's a different kind of thing. They say things like, well, you don't need to talk about your relationship. Like, you don't need to talk about it. And it's like, oh, that's just Minnesota passive aggressive homophobia. That's not like, you're not actually being nice. Sure. Because <laughs> I've had that from coworkers before. Like, you don't have to talk about having a boyfriend. And I'm like, I don't. <laughs> you have pictures of your family on your desk. In the past several years, has the side B vision ever seemed compelling to you again? Or no, and why or why not? I think mainly as I've seen churches very decisively avoid endorsing it, mm -hmm. I have only felt further like a certainty that I made the right choice mm -hmm. because I felt like I was going to have the rug pulled out for me again if I tried staying in churches that mm. claimed that but didn't put it on paper. Yeah, mm, sure. So, yeah, I can't say that I have keeps kind of just a buffer away from getting, yeah. Right. Love from you right. It's like at some point, has Charlie Brown, I have to stop going to try and kick Lucy's oh, football. Yeah. You know, it's like I... Oh, that always pained me so much. Right. <laughs> it is. It's one of the worst jokes in Peanuts. I like that comic strip otherwise, but it's just like, <laughs> this is so agonizing. Yet it's like almost nihilistic. I don't know what kind of philosoph philosophical thing Charles Schultz was going for with that, but it is... There's some profound stuff in there, and I, I don't know if that's one of those things, but it definitely, it definitely hurts. Yeah, totally. Every, see, every time you see it. Yeah. Well, I dearly hope that's not our church. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you know, I understand how, like, the the hopes that we have versus the, the like, mm -hmm. our guttural response. Right. Yeah, odds. Right. And for some people, that psychological tension doesn't produce anxiety the way it did for me. Hmm. Like plenty of people are in, I, I even had a friend who was like dating men openly and went to a church that did not affirm in any way, mm -hmm. but he, he did. And I don't, I didn't understand that, but I guess even though he came from a kind of similar background, like Lutheran church, Missouri synod and was a pastor's kid in that, you know, he just didn't have that same kind of dissonance that mm -hmm. I had hmm. in going to a church. I didn't feel like I could do things that they would not have approved of, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. You seem to have just a very high sense of integrity yeah. and yeah. like wanting to be very forthright and truthful and like whatever you're doing or whatever group you're participating in. So just, yeah, as I've gotten to know different people in community, of course, people have different values and stuff, right. but right. even different people have different orientations towards communication right. and of like right. what it means to be truthful or letting yeah. those contexts that I think I'm, I'm more akin to you of like I'm thinking through of like okay to be in this group then yeah. I'm carrying forth these certain expectations and understanding yeah. that I need to be responsible to those and yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I understand that yeah what about so we asked about side B I'm also curious has the side A vision continued because I sort of I sort of I've always pictured of late to be kind of side A-ish Right. Has the vision seemed compelling to you or has it been like, this is, this, this is the life that I'm living and it seems good. So I'm going to walk in it or yeah. how do you process that as of now? I mean, I think the latter more that there's been a lot of actual healing from, I think mainly it was just problematic authority figures and relationships with authority that mm -hmm. I grew up with, but I haven't, I can't say that I find it exactly compelling because I, my, my personal 
faith, I would say I'm more in an agnostic phase right now where it's just been really hard for the last five, six years to find justification for the amount of effort that I put into the Christian context I was in and thinking of what did I gain for this? Like what, what, not that it's all about what you gain, but it's like, where is, is the payoff only on the other side of the river Jordan mm-hmm. or are there things I could be better putting my time into that are affecting people here? Okay. And I do think that's partly like going into a job, like as a special ed teacher, that is one of the things that shifted was I, I left teaching at BCS and started grad school to become a special ed teacher. And it was partly that I was, you know, my doctoral convictions were shifting, but it was also just that it is a very demanding field. And I really mm-hmm. care about the students I work with mm-hmm. and you could call it a ministry, but it's not, it's not in a Christian framework. Uh-huh. Um, and it's not like it's replaced that, but I don't have as much energy to put into like a church and ministry when I, you know, at least during the school year, mm-hmm. Fair. <laughs> I feel this is, I'm religious, but not spiritual. Sure. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Which is like the opposite of whatever the trope was in the nineties. <laughs> but yeah. I, I find the practices of religion of the, of the religions I grew up with, you mm-hmm. know, not religions, but like evangelicalism, Anglicanism, even some of the Pentecostal things like on the XK ministry, like I liked their like bizarre idea of what worship looks like, uh-huh. but I don't necessarily know that it actually was bringing me any closer to God. That's what I'm struggling with mm-hmm. because I thought I was having a shared experience of being brought closer to God and being brought closer to God meant having certain convictions about reaching out to the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And when all of a sudden that was like withdrawn and people weren't taking a stand on that anymore. And there definitely are evangelicals who are and people from all walks, but it's just not institutionally mm-hmm. what is really being uh, emphasized mm-hmm. right now in the political climate. The one exception I would say is the Catholic church, which I would never join, but I think it's just because their Pope is a Jesuit. Jesuits. Jesuits. <laughs> They're another level. <laughs> They're so great. <laughs> I don't know when this happened, but, uh, the IHOP in Minnesota is now Jayhawk, uh, uh yes. Justice House of Prayer. Yes. A whole fits towards an orientation of recognizing yeah. the necessity here. Yeah. And TJ and I have had conversations about the three transcendentals of the good, yeah. the true, and the beautiful. Yeah. And how yeah, that a lot of evangelical culture mm-hmm. just only harped on the true. The true. Right. And. And that it just left us like emaciated of, of goodness and beauty right. and that it just, the truth can't sustain itself. It's, it's never, it can't, it's never meant to hold itself up on its own. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think really a lot of people can relate to that. Like, okay, I have all these truths that I don't yeah. disrespect a lot of yeah. them, but if they're not being borne out in the, the goodness and justice that right. it's meant to bore out right. something's wrong here. What can I trust this truth anymore? Yeah. It should be bearing fruit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is one of those arguments that even though I remember listening at the time to, there was a sermon by Matthew Vines that went viral. I think he wrote God and the gay Christian. And I, mm-hmm. I think that was one of the other books. Maybe that was the other one I was thinking of that I read, but he talked about that, you know, you shall know by a tree, a tree by its fruit argument for 
we should be bearing the fruits of the Spirit in a Christian context that is following Jesus, following the Holy Spirit, and that if we're not, we should raise questions about it. And so often when leaders go bad, they're perceived as not being part of their church. Lists. Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, they were just a bad apple. But I was actually just rereading this passage because like in the context, it's very much about community and mm -hmm. about the structure. Like even though those three verses or whatever could be interpreted individualistically, the context in the, I don't think it's said exactly that way in the Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke where it said that way, but you shall know a tree by its fruit. It's, it's definitely about mm -hmm. the whole, and you can't just say, that's the branch, right? You can't just say, oh, that branch is bad. Yeah. Cause that's not what Jesus says. And, and yes, it is parabolic teaching. It's very much, you're going too far sometimes if you, if you could take the analogies as that far, but <laughs> I do think Matthew Vines has a point, even though I wouldn't say it's because of beliefs about uh, sexuality as much as his beliefs about authority that caused these trees to go bad. Mm -hmm. I know we want to kind of move towards wrapping up, yeah. but I had a final question, at least for me was, mm -hmm. um, but how do you, what are your opinions on side B and side A Christians relating, as you've mentioned? Yeah. Cause it can be tense at times. Yeah. Other times it's not tense. It yeah. just kind of depends on the situation. Right. Yeah. But do you have any thoughts on how uh, they can better relate to one another? I mean, I think, well, even though I now disagree with him, I think Wesley Hill is a great example because he's part of the Episcopal church. Mm -hmm. And I think he sh has shown a great model that even though there are priests who disagree with him mm -hmm. and they think that there are problems with side B, they also recognize that on paper, the Episcopal church is one of the few denominations that will actually welcome side B people, even though there are going to be militant side A people who might make you feel uncomfortable. And I think Wesley's humility um, in engaging with that conversation is an example and just Recognizing that the people who are going to be trying to push you out of that kind of a context are few and far between. Uh -huh. Um, cause I don't think there's any movement to get rid of celibate priests who are gay mm -hmm. uh, in that context. But he is, I think one of the few people who's open about that, uh -huh. but he couldn't be in the ACNA. So I think of him and I just think of my other friends in that group where they may be, you know, somewhere in between side A and B, like they just don't know, or. They are, for just practical reasons, side B, uh, and those vary, but it's not easy, no matter what. But I do feel like it's really worthwhile to try and build community across divides. And that really was the beginning of that whole side B, side A conversation. I think the group was literally called Bridges Across the Divide. Yeah, yeah. Back in the day, and they might take umbrage, because I remember in their side B group, people taking umbrage with the creation of a side X. Sure, sure. But it's like... Y'all side X people don't want to have this conversation. So <laughs> we need to give you another name because uh, you're not, you're not interested in this. And if you made that very clear, yep. so trying to include you in the whole side B thing is not working. Yeah. Um, right. Cause I remember that in, in that group, like people from the old, the guard uh -huh. were really mad that we were creating a side X oh, yeah. to talk about the ex gay people. But it's like ex gay people do not want to acknowledge the Christianity of anyone who identifies as queer. Uh -huh. So. So yeah, they don't want this conversation. Like yeah. they are differentiating themselves. I get that. I definitely want us in the future episode to pull out that strand more. That sometimes side B people can be more side A churches can be most accommodating to them in a certain right. way. Right. Whereas the churches that ostensibly we'd be closer to in our particular theological beliefs, yeah. uh, sometimes 
substantially more difficult for side B people yeah. and cause active barriers or hardships. Right. And your story has kind of brought that forward as well. Yeah. So you were side B. Mm -hmm. you yeah. Know. Any further thoughts there, Frank? No, it it's, gives me a lot to think on just with regards to the cultural dynamics yeah. uh, that we're navigating in side A, B, Y, or X spaces of Christianity and culture. And I mean, as we, you know, have seen over these years, the, the polarization, the us and them mean mm -hmm. is not unique to Christians. Yeah. And but just really thinking about how, how much it can impact our faith or right. understanding spirituality and faith in God, like how much it can provide, make, put, put up barriers, make things confusing, yeah. hard to see through. One of the things I was curious about, TJ, if you're still in that group, are you? I am actually, yeah. I was curious if the conversation about uh, trans people had changed because it always confused me that the perspective was like a side B perspective on trans is like, you may be identified privately, but you're not ever going to transition publicly, mm -hmm. which I guess makes sense by analogy, but it doesn't make sense theologically. To sure. So I was curious, has that conversation evolved at all in that group? Except from, so um, we're both in that group. I would say now there's a few, there's some more public trans people in the group. Yeah. And I would say that the, we have moved away from our society consensus. Mm. You say the same? Like that is how I see it is in, there's definitely said people have strong opinions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on multiple. <laughs> sort of well, yeah, they always have strong opinions. They always have strong opinions. Yes. Uh, but. But that's queer people in general. So. Uh, oh yeah. Captain Ice. But I don't know. I don't think there's a, uh, there's less of a firm common stance yeah. any longer. Yeah. It's more, the most common perspective is just listen to the yeah. trans people within us and yeah. within our group. Yeah. And then see what they have to say. Is I'm that great? What are you thinking? Uh, yeah, I think I came to the group a little bit later. Yeah. And I never have felt like there was a consensus. Yeah. Direct side B perspective on that. Right. I think, yeah, I did try and avoid it, but uh -huh. what ended up happening was people would transition or want to transition and then just leave. Yeah. And I, and I think in, at Revoice, they had a trans panel hmm. that was primarily represented by a leaning towards like recognizing your created biological sex mm -hmm. and wanting to honor that yeah. as a way of honoring God yeah. while giving space for a little gender deconstruction right. in the ways that we've right. you know created like what male and female is supposed to look yeah. like and in a deep understanding and sympathy for gender dysphoria and mm -hmm. similar mm -hmm. experiences and what what space or accommodations can we give people, whether that's in appearances or potentially yeah. in, in pronouns um, right. to help people navigate those experiences yeah. with, but would still in that, like, it, I don't think there was anyone who represented a positive view of changing your biology, biology as much as possible yeah. to match your preferred gender right. expression. Yeah. I don't think that view was proposed. And I would imagine that, yeah, correlates roughly to like a side A perspective on it. But I've always just found that fascinating because mm -hmm. to me, it seems more cultural than founded in like explicitly things, explicit things in the Bible. Whereas I understand how the side B and the traditional Christian teaching on sexuality uh -huh. is explicitly like there are six verses, you know, sure. and then more beyond it. Yeah. So it's interesting that 
I'm glad that there's more space for trans people. I would say so. I have a predator to our data, they're low profile in the group, Yeah, but they've transitioned. Yeah. Cool. But I know other people who are more like high profile, quote unquote, in the group who I think they're gen, they seen as non-binary. Yeah. Yeah. So I know a few examples of both. My, just my impression of being in the group was there was no consensus and I, and I know of a few people who are in different persons. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, JP. Yeah. We loved having you here. Thank we loved your perspective. Really, yeah. It's really an honor to be able to share with you guys. Yeah, we were so happy. So thanks also to our listeners. We're so happy you're joining us. We're so happy you can hear stories from people who, from multiple perspectives, have gone different journeys, are thinking different things as of now. And we hope you keep listening. Yeah, I think that's everything. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.